and welcome back to Outside Football Podcast. My name is Cam Pope and it is a pleasure to be able to bring you another tale from the exotic world of international football. And it's been a while. Last time when we met, we were delving into the short but rich history of the Kosovo national team and its pursuit of Euro 2020 qualification. And if you want to hear more about a team who, up until a few years ago, were having to borrow training equipment and weren't allowed to play their national anthem at games, you can download The Edge of Greatness on Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor FM and via our Twitter. That's at OutsideFooty, footy with a Y. International matches were few and far between last year, but luckily in 2021, that seems to have changed. The European Championships and Copa America have served to liven up the summer, but in this episode, our attention is focused elsewhere. Another major tournament returning to our stadiums and TV screens in the summer of 2021 is the biennial CONCACAF Gold Cup. Since its inception in 1991, renamed from the old CONCACAF Championship, two countries have vied for dominance over its 15 editions, Mexico and the USA. The pair have been crowned regional champions a combined 14 times, El Tri leading the way with eight victories, with the Americans on six. In three decades, there has been just one other winner, and this, told through the first-hand recollections of two very special guests, is the story of Canada. The year is 1999. Canadian football is not in lean shape. 13 years have passed since its men's national team's one and only appearance at a World Cup. Its professional tournament, the Canadian Soccer League, disbanded in 1992 after just six seasons, its best teams heading south to join US-based competitions. On the international scene, the Canucks had pulled out of the 1998 Gold Cup, officially in a sporting gesture, allowing Jamaica to replace them and practice ahead of the 1998 World Cup in France, though behind the scenes, rumours of financial issues abounded. In three previous Gold Cup instalments, Canada had not progressed beyond the group stage. In 2000, mere qualification for the tournament was by no means a certainty. One man who can take us back to the 90s and give us a glimpse of what it was like to be coming through as an aspiring Canadian soccer player is 59-cap striker and former Cambridge United, Northampton and Oldham frontman in the English leagues, Carlo Corazon. Yeah, I mean, soccer's played by... Ironically, you'll find this interesting and everybody listening, listening. It's just at that time, especially, there was nothing to aspire to, really. The CSL starting going, but really didn't have any sort of you know, limelight about it. So for a young player um, or an athlete that played multiple sports, you never really chose soccer because there was obviously ice hockey opportunities and American football opportunities and baseball opportunities. So a lot of them would choose to go that direction. For me, um, you know, I played lacrosse and soccer growing up and this opportunity came about and I loved playing. And so I thought, you know what, it's, it's an opportunity for me to, to jump on and so so I did and that's how it all started. The young athlete may have been forged in Canada but a chance encounter saw to it that the foundations of 16-year-old Carlo's football career would be laid a long way from the soccer pitches of North America on the sun-baked fields of his ancestral home, Italy. I had been going every summer with my parents to Italy um, just on holidays because um, my grandma was still alive over there and um, it happened actually quite 
you know, just by accident, I was actually playing on a church field in a local village and um, a gentleman had seen me playing and said, uh, you know, a little bit lost in translation. He came up to me and said, who do you belong to? And uh, I explained to him who my dad and my mom were. And um, he said, okay, well, do you mind if we walk back home and, and, and have a chat with them? So, you know, no, at that time, no stranger danger alert or anything. There I was walking with this gentleman. I had no idea who he was um, back to our house a couple of blocks away. And um, ironically, this gentleman had played soccer with my dad and knew my dad. And he said um, to him in Italian, he said, I want him to stay here. I think he can play here. Well, that's all I needed to know because I understood. And I said, well, I'm, I'm staying. And so that's how it all started originally, me staying in Italy. And I ended up staying there for four years. It was during this time that international opportunities began to swing Carlo's way in terms of youth call-ups, starting in 1989. A gentleman called Bruce Twomley took a team to um, Morocco for the uh, Francophone Games, and that's when I really made my debut. And then I, you know, I was young. I was only, at the time, I think I just turned 16 or 17. I can't recall. So then... I really broke into the national team and Bobby was the guy that, that really, you know, solidified my spot there. Um, I played four years in Italy and I was getting to the point where there was some interest from some Serie B teams, but the team that had me um, weren't willing to sell me on quite yet. And I kind of said to them in the January of that year, I said, I got to go back for Olympic qualifying for Barcelona 92. I said, um, if you haven't moved me on by the time the qualifying finishes, I'm probably going to stay back home. And so I think they tried to call my bluff and I stayed back home. And back in those days, it was before the Bosman ruling, they held on to your rights as a footballer. So uh, we reached out to them and said, listen, I'm not going to come back, but I'm going to stay in Canada. There's you know, a startup league here. Can you re release my rights and I'll stay here? So I stayed back. And at the time, Vancouver was a powerhouse, the 86ers at the time. Um, so I ended up signing with a team out of Winnipeg, Canada, the Fury, for one season. And I played there and ironically ended up beating the 86ers at the time in the finals back in Vancouver. And the following season, um, Vancouver chose to sign me. So I ended up staying here in Vancouver. And during that season, um, I was playing for the 86ers down in California, in Fullerton, California. And I had had a good game and scored three goals. And a gentleman walked up to me again as we were walking off the pitch and said, um, would you be interested in going back to Europe? I didn't know this guy from anybody. And I said, oh, yeah, I would be. I said, what's the opportunity? And he said, well, this gentleman here is Lou Macari. And he likes what he sees. So would you be interested in going to Stoke City? And I said, well, absolutely. And he said, well, we hear you've got an Italian passport. Is it in order? And by this time it had, it had elapsed. And I said, no, it's not. But I can, you know, I can get it all back up in order. And they said, okay, well, as soon as you've got that, please give us a call back. And, you know, I didn't think much of it, but I went about getting it done. And it took, I think, if I recall, it took about six to eight weeks to get done. And then at the end of it, I called and uh, they said, no buy yourself a plane ticket, fly into Manchester, and we'll reimburse you when you get here. Again, going on total faith, I did that. I landed in Manchester, 
and Chick Bates was there to pick me up. He drove me back to the to the old Britannia ground, and uh, I walked into the office. And back then, the paper tickets had the amount you had spent on it, and uh, he proceeded to peel off what it was and gave me back my money and said, "You're going to stay in Biggs," and that's how I got to, got to England. And yeah, of course, playing over there definitely helped. Definitely. I mean, we didn't have a lot of Canadians playing abroad at all at that time. Um, you know, I always thank the guys that were in England before me, the Frank Yallops, Craig Forrests, who kind of paved the way for us. Um, the next group of us to go over there, which was myself and Paul Pesciusleo and Mark Watson. And, and, and there was a number of us that then followed in their footsteps. But uh, I mean, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't. You know, it would be very similarly to a British boy coming here with his ice hockey gear saying, okay, I want to, I want to give this a go. And, you know, I, I got people that believed in me and, and I got situations that benefited me um, for what they needed at the time. And it, I just happened to be the one that, that, that fit the mold. As the 90s progressed, Carlo became a mainstay of a handful of English league teams, scoring 99 goals for Cambridge, Plymouth and Northampton. He debuted for the senior Canuck side in the 1994 friendly draw with Morocco and turned out regularly from then on for his national team. No mean feat, considering the air miles that required. Back then there was a rule that the actual clubs didn't have a choice. If you were, if you were uh, called out for your national team, they had to allow you to go seven days prior to the call-out date. Um, did it cause a lot of anguish? Of course it did. And leading up to that previous when I was at Plymouth with Neil Warnock, it caused a huge rift between us because as a young footballer, it doesn't matter who you represent as your national home it's an honor and it's very difficult to say, no, I'm not coming. Um, especially when, you know, Canada being the soccer country that we are not at that time, especially filled with a ton of talent that the pool was so big when they came a calling, you usually wanted to go. So it did lead to a lot of, of stress and a lot of, uh, unhappy, let's say managers and, and chairman that, that felt like, hang on a second, we're paying your wages, but you're going to play somewhere else. So, I mean, it, it was a struggle at time, but thankfully nobody ever really denied me. They weren't happy all the time that I had to go, but, you know, fortunately we worked it out and I, I got to go, especially to that qualifying tournament. As we arrive at the focal point of this episode, the 2000 Gold Cup in the USA, it's time to bring in our second invitee. His is a voice that many English fans might recognise, especially those of Birmingham City, Stoke City, West Brom, Fulham, Sheffield United and Derby. A regular feature in the division now known as the Championship and unquestionably one of Canada's most successful overseas players of all time. Another striker, Paul Pescasolido. We were always ranked you know, one of the top three, four teams in CONCACAF. There was only ever two spots for, for CONCACAF. Um, and Mexico were in a league of their own. They were far more advanced, far more technical than any of the other countries. And um, it was ourselves, and um, we were more in line fighting with the likes of Jamaica and uh, uh, Honduras and El Salvador and, and, and uh, Costa Rica and clubs like that, and countries like that. It was difficult, though. You know, we, we found it very difficult. We were going into some pretty hostile atmospheres, going down to Central America and South, especially Central America. Um, you had uh, the, all the elements against you. You had the, uh, the referee, which was 
substandard. Uh, I gotta say, it was horrendous. Um, we had the stadiums were substandard, so the training pitches. Sorry, not even the training pitches. The actual the actual stadium pitches. You'd go there the day before to check it out. And there would be there would be goats grazing on it. That's how they cut the grass. Um, people don't realize that. And then, like I said, the hostility was ridiculous. You'd have to have police escorts everywhere you went. Um, and it was dangerous, very dangerous. You'd go into the into the grounds, and you were met by fans throwing things and abusing you. In El Salvador, particularly, you play in the match. They had the, the old fencing around the pitches. And what they used to do is urinate bags. And as you'd go to take a throw in, or any time you got to the side of the pitch, they would launch bags of urine feces at you, which is absolutely horrendous. So it was difficult, not to mention, they put you in hotels, suddenly the electrics would go off, they put you on the top floor, so you were no air conditioning, and every time you woke up, went to training, or what have you, you had to do kind of 60 flights of stairs, because obviously the electricity didn't work. The night before a game, without fail, there was a huge party right in front of the hotel on the street. So it was it was really really tough, but you know what? It galvanized us. It made us um, stronger character, stronger characters, um, and it brought us closer together. And I think that's why the, the group we had certainly had success was because we were so bonded, stuck in these these camps for months. Um, you couldn't do anything because very similar to what we're in now. You're in lockdown. You had a a twelve year old security guard with a M. M- I didn't know you call them an M40 rifle standing outside. So you didn't dare go outside the roof. But it, like I said, it galvanized the group, and um, you know, it was difficult. But obviously, it was always an honor playing for the country, so it was uh, it was great. There was obviously always Mexico and the United States that kind of sat atop of that whole Concacaf group, and then there was a bunch of teams. There could have been anywhere from six to eight teams that all were relatively the same level, the same competition. Anybody could beat anybody on the day. And it's reflective of what CONCACAF was at the time. I mean, it's, it's so changed now to what it is. But there definitely was those top two-tier teams, and then there was a bunch of us. And as you can see in the results, it, it wasn't easy. But you have to also remember that was the first time, and I can't remember how many years, that Canada had to actually go to the pre-qualifying to go to the Gold Cup because we had fallen so far behind with our national team compared to the rest of the region that, you know, we had to go to a pre-qualifying um, a tournament to even get to the Gold Cup. So, I mean, it was a long path. It was a lot of uh, being away from, you know, uh, club teams. But again, like I say, it was nice that we found a way to make it work. In October 1999, a four-team round-robin was in place to decide which two teams would take up the final two berths at the following Gold Cup. The format was simple. Canada, Cuba, El Salvador and Haiti would play against each other once in Los Angeles over a five-day period, with the top two-place countries in the group progressing to the tournament. A goalless draw against Cuba meant a shaky start, but Carlo's ninth-minute goal against El Salvador followed up by a second-half winner from Carl Fletcher in a 2-1 victory, righted the ship with a game to go. In the final match with Haiti, a first-half Cora's embrace was enough to send the Canucks through unbeaten after a second 2-1 win. I remember specifically the game against El Salvador, and I scored, um, and I remember the goal at the near post, and I remember thinking to myself, I think we finally cracked it. I think we finally have gotten over that hurdle of... Uh, 
of not managing to get over that finish line and get into a tournament. And, and, and I mean, you have to remember, we had just hired as a nation, um, Holger Osiak from Germany and, and he had a plan in place and he really solidified how we were going to go and approach these things. We weren't ever going to blow any teams out of the water, but we were never going to get blown out of the water and we were going to rely on set pieces and, and, and the odd goal here and there. And, it all came to fruition, and I have to say, a lot of it was because of the the structure he put in place that we hadn't been used to in Canada. In manager Holger Osiek, the Canadians had a real trump card. The German, who had enjoyed a brief spell with Vancouver Whitecaps towards the end of his career in the 1970s, brought bags of experience, bolstered through his time in the setups of Schalke, Marseille, and the West German national team, winners of the 1990 World Cup. The difference was, was noticeable to someone like myself because those four years I spent in Italy where, you know, football is a religion is the same as in England and Germany and a lot of the European nations. So his attention to detail and his, um, for lack of better terms, his, his no-nonsense, either you bought in or if you did, weren't willing to buy in what he was selling, then you weren't going to come and you weren't going to play. Um, and so he put in this infrastructure that everybody was, was finally thinking, okay, we can go from this point. It's not just scrambled eggs. It's not just, oh, we'll show up three, four days before an international and try and win. There was very, very um, methodical camps put in place. We went over to Germany a few times and there was no nonsense. This is what it was. This is what he expected. And, and, and you bought in and, and that's where the, the fruits of that labor came in the pre-qualifying and then obviously onto the Gold Cup. It was the best time to be involved in the Canadian program. To have that group of players, myself, Craig Forrest, Mark Watson, I think, at Oxford, Carlo Corzine, I think he was playing maybe Northampton, um, Jimmy Brennan from Forrest, Mark Bertram, I think at the time he was either QPR or, or Millwall, not sure, and jumped on the plane, flew out to Vancouver, and they put us in a training camp. They didn't want us to get unfit. And the, the, um, the, the Gold Cup didn't start for another month. So we had a month training camp. So it was, it was pretty tough going. But um, again, that galvanized us. And we, we enjoyed ourselves in Vancouver. And then we prepared ourselves when we got into uh, L.A. And it was just written in the stars. Everybody was discounting us. And, you know, like I said, I touched on a few of the players that, that were on that team. Craig Forrest was playing in the Premiership at the time. So we knew... We were safe there. We had Jason DeVos and Mark Watson playing in the center back. So two guys that, you know, were playing in Europe at that time at very solid clubs. So we knew we had pieces. We had uh, Paul Stoltieri playing in Germany. So there was a lot of pieces in place that we knew um, were strong. We just had to come together as a team and put it all together. I'd be lying if I said we thought we could win the tournament, but I think we thought we could go in you know, make some waves. We had built this momentum. We had everybody on the same page and we knew a lot of the primary players were playing abroad and, and playing every day. So that would help. Um, but again, we had never done it in a tournament as Canada. So the doubt was still there. Um, you know, how far could we go? But I remember opening up the program and, and we still talk about it to this day. And basically, you know, not word for word, but in a roundabout way, they were saying basically Canada was there to make up numbers and it would be a quick exit for them. And I think that spurned us on. The competition proper would not get underway until February the 12th. 
12 teams, split across four groups of three, would do battle for the North and Central American crown across three vast host stadia. Miami's sprawling Orange Bowl, San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium, the smallest of the trio, but still boasting 70,000 seats, and the giant 93,000-seater Memorial Coliseum in LA. As Carlo and Paul mentioned, among the pre-tournament favourites were, of course, the USA. Ranked 22nd in the world, the host hadn't tasted victory since 1991, but they were gunning for a return to glory on home soil. Their main rival came in the form of the region's leading light Mexico, with El Tri in pole position to make it four tournament wins on the bounce. Jamaica's reggae boys had come third in 1993 and now had World Cup experience to draw on, while three guest teams, Colombia, Peru and South Korea, all served to heighten the stakes. The curtain raiser in Florida saw the hosts pummel Haiti with three unanswered goals in Group B, while in Group A, the Colombians debuted with a 1-0 win over Jamaica. With the top two in each group progressing, one win would ultimately prove enough for progression to the last eight. Mexico would thump four past Trinidad and Tobago in Group C the following day, but before that, it was the turn of Carlo, Paul and the Canadians. The draw for Group D had not been kind to Holger Osiek's men. They first faced Central American champions Costa Rica in San Diego, with South Korea gearing up for their first World Cup showing in 2002, awaiting them in LA two days later. Paul and Carlo started alongside each other against a side-boasting Premier League striker Paolo Wanchop, albeit on the bench. 11 minutes in, it seemed they didn't need him. The Ticos took an early lead through Jafet Soto of Puebla in the Mexican League, and two Corazon goals were needed to dig Canada out of the mire. The Canucks came from behind twice, with a touch of the spectacular to draw 2-2. Well, I remember scoring the two goals and, and the overhead to tie it up. Um, you know, it was it was one of those things, again, Cam, that Canada never really scored a ton of goals, so... For us to get two goals in a game, in an international game, it was an achievement in itself. Um, and Costa Rica at that time were starting to really build a pretty good squad. They had some some very notable players as well. So for us to claw back and get a draw there was huge momentum booster because going into a tournament, as long as you don't lose that first game, it gives you an opportunity. So for us to get you know a draw in that game and move forward from that point, I think helped a ton. South Korea were up next a little over 48 hours later. The Asian invitees were yet to play. Well, we didn't know a lot about them, that was for sure. But what we did know is they were a good team because we knew about, you know, what the successes that team had had previously to come into the Gold Cup. So we knew it was going to be a tough game. But on the other hand, amongst us, we knew it, there really wasn't a lot to lose for us. I mean, yeah, it was in the Gold Cup and yeah, it meant points, but... It was a team from outside of our region. So we just thought, well, we're just going to go play the best we can play, stick to the system that Holger implemented, and we'll see where it takes us. The German coach made just one change. Inverness's Richard Hastings in for another Scotland-based player, Paul Fennick of Greenock Morton, as the two sides played out a nil-nil stalemate. I remember it not being a great game. That's what I do remember about it. But again, getting the result that we needed. Like I say, I think we took on the game as if, well, yeah, we need to get a result, but let's take on this sort of juggernaut of a team in comparison to the other teams in in CONCACAF. And that's not being disrespectful to them, but this was a good Korean team. So I don't know if we knew the extent of the importance of that point 
time, but it, obviously, as you know, it, it, it turned out being a huge point at that stage. With Canada on two points from two games and both opponents on one from one, a win for either the Koreans or Costa Rica when they met in the final group game will be enough to send the Canucks into the knockouts for the very first time. A low-scoring draw, 0-0 or 1-1, would also send Canada through on goals scored. How incredible it was then that a freak mathematical occurrence and an 85th-minute equaliser from Hernan Medford would see two sides locked neck and neck with exactly the same record. The final game of Group D ended in the same way as the first, 2-2, and therein lay the problem. Having netted twice in each match, Costa Rica were through as winners, on two points, equal goal difference, and four goals scored. Canada and South Korea also had two points, a goal difference of zero, and crucially, the same number of goals scored. They could not be separated. How do you split two teams who cancel one another out on the pitch and in the standings? A playoff? Straight-up penalty shootout? Crossbar challenge from the halfway line? Well, no. No feat of sporting endurance or precision shooting would do to work out who progressed to the next stage. Qualification would be decided on the flip of a coin. The 2-2 draw, you know, there's nothing you can do um, about that. It's off the field. Obviously, it's then gone to a coin toss. Do you remember the moment where you found out that was the way your Gold Cup fate was going to be decided? Yeah, we did. Well, we knew about it because it was in the program sort of... Um basically the steps of what it was goals for goals against and and then it came to this coin toss and you never think it's coming down to the coin toss but it did and I remember it was in a tent it was pouring rain that night and um, here we are going for a coin toss to, for our fate in this tournament and I remember a bunch of us standing at the back of the tent because it was happening at the front of the tent and Holger went up to take this coin toss and I remember a few of us saying, and this is no disrespect to the Canadians and our lock in football. It's like, thank God we've got a German taking our coin toss to see if we go through. Because if it was a Canadian for sure, we would have probably lost this coin toss. But Holger found a way to win a coin toss and uh, the rest is history from that night. It was amazing because, again, we were so far back in the tent and we see this coin go up in the air and we see it come down and they they take their hand off it, and all this Holger did is he looked up, he smirked at us, and he put his thumbs up, and he went, we've got it. And I thought, wow, it's like, again, it's giving me shivers now because we never, ever had that luck. We never, ever got ourselves into that position to get that luck. So it was a pretty pretty good evening, let's say, after that. You know, I don't know how to describe it. These players completely played out of their skin. Um, we played like a team. We had the luck on our side, even to the point of getting through the coin toss, which I don't know how they came up with that device, but uh, we'll take it. We'll take it. And to be honest, after winning that coin toss, and we didn't have a lot of luck, to be honest. We had to graft for our luck any time we had anything. Um, we just felt that this could be our year. It really could. It, it's so hard to, to, to say in words, can the emotions of that time, like, was roller coaster, right? Like, and again, for, for a nation and for a bunch of guys that hadn't had those experiences and hadn't even gotten to those points where it mattered, um, it was incredible. It was like this, and I've had these interviews before about the Gold Cup, and it was like a train taking off from a station, you know, just kind of sputtering out and, you know, moving its wheels and continually going. And then 
it, it came to the point that we just were this freight train that was really confident in what we were doing. Again, not playing anybody off the park or not scoring a ton of goals, but we knew that we were solid and we could definitely get something out of it. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy, but um, my most enjoyable uh, time as a Canadian. And um, went in, you know, I think we played Mexico, never beat Mexico for as long as I can remember. The plan never changed. The plan was sit, absorb, be solid, be, be as solid as you can and hit them on the counterattack. And if we can get a set piece or two, um, our dominance in the air would, would hopefully come to fruition. And, and uh, the one thing I do remember, and I, I've mentioned this again, <clears throat> our assistant coach, Bruce Twomley, was a CONCACAF guru. This guy knew every single player in this region, in and out. He would travel up and down Central America, finding out what's, who's who, what ages. And, and I remember him saying, guys, and, and this was a Mexico team that was loaded with talent. Like, I mean loaded with talent. And he said, if we play our game, the only guy that's going to hurt us is their left back. And we, we all thought, the left back? How's the left back going to hurt us? And sure as dynamite, who scores their opening goal was Ramon Ramirez from left back. Comes inside, plays a one-two on the edge of the box and scores. And we're like, this can't be happening. The left back, who we were notified was going to hurt us, hurt us. And I think we thought at the time, okay, we know now this is the guy. We're going to adjust. We're not going to give him any more, but we're still going to be solid. And then we just slowly started playing into that game, playing into that game, and started to get the rub of the green, started to get some free kicks. Some, and we just stuck with it. We stuck with the game plan and, uh, and took it into the second half. And then, obviously, the header by myself in the 83rd minute, if I'm not mistaken, um, to tie it up. And at that stage, talk about jubilation. Carlo's memory serves him well. His equaliser kept Canadian hopes alive with just seven minutes remaining. A Martin Nash cross from the left found the forward on the penalty spot, and his downward header past Oscar Perez pegged the stunned Mexicans back into a contest once more. Canada had three goals at the Gold Cup, and Carlo had scored all of them. And then it was playground rules. Extra time, next goal wins. And again, you know, the golden goal that didn't last that long in football anyway but um again talking in between going into extra time and Holger's like you know just stay compact Carlo you stay the most forward and we're going to play off of you and I remember the ball being cleared out to me I chest it down to Stalteri and I remember it vividly he plays a long through ball to Hastings who credit to him you know had the lungs of an iron horse and uh, I found a way to hit a strike that, that beat the goalkeeper. And, and at that stage, you have to understand you're in San Diego. I mean, if I had to say probably 93%, 95% Mexican fans, all with the Vuvuzelas, to silence, to utter and dismay, like completely silence, silence to the point that you could hear yourself talking to one another. And previous to that, you couldn't hear anything. And it was just, it was almost like, we didn't know how to celebrate because we hadn't ever gotten to this point before. And um, again, just unbelievable sense of accomplishment for us at that stage. As it happened, the contest was over in the blink of an eye. 
Richard Hastings' winner came less than two minutes into the extra period. And incredibly, Holger Osijek's Canada had seen off El Tree, winners of the last three tournaments, in a game that many had down pre-kickoff as a whitewash. This run was without precedent. Remember, no Canadian team had even got out of the group at the Gold Cup. But given Colombia's shootout win over the United States just the day before, in which the USA had missed four of their five penalties, both previous winners and the biggest favourites were out before the semis. But before we jump into the final four, we really ought to check on Carlo's uh, injury. Marquez went up with, I think that was Corazon who came down hard and has not got up. It looks as though he's clutching his groin or lower abdomen area. Oh, he got a foot and right a foot. there. And you don't need to be told where that was. Well, we know that he'll be back in the game. That's smarts. Smarts indeed. One thing that stood out for me from that game, and uh, besides the goals and the celebration, it looks like you copped a rather painful tackle from, uh, from Rafa Marquez, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Even to this day, that uh, gets sent to me on my cell phone every so often from people that maybe have just come across it or, um, you know, have, have now seen the video. It gets sent to me as a joke and, yeah, I do remember that. I mean, you think back to today's age and what they have for for VAR and stuff. I mean, he would have got sent off and, and probably a suspension for a significant amount of time. But, um, yeah, I do remember that very clearly. Where were we? Ah, yes, the semi-finals. Canada have come through the qualifying tournament, progressed from the group via a coin toss, they've beaten Mexico in extra time, they're now unbeaten in nine games, and they face Trinidad and Tobago for a place in the final. Their opponents are the reigning Caribbean champions and while only ranked 45th in the world coming into the tournament, on paper they are streets ahead of Canada, down in 80th. This was again in, in our region. It was a good Trinidad team. They had some good players at that stage and, and they were starting to play some good football and they were competing, getting good results against the Mexicos at that time. So we knew it was going to be a tough game. Just 2,000 spectators were in attendance at LA's cavernous Memorial Coliseum as the Canucks battled the Soccer Warriors. And in the 35th minute, those of a Trinidadian persuasion were sent into ratches. Forward Jaron Nixon was hauled down in the Canadian box by Watson. Penalty was the verdict. But an unconventional display of positioning from goalkeeper Craig Forrest, who stood far to the right of centre and scurried away to the left as David Nackid readied himself to step up, seemed to do the trick. Catching the shot low to his right, the West Ham stopper kept the score at 0-0. With honours even at half-time, the ever-reliable dead ball would once again prove Canada's best friend. A David Zausa corner in the 68th minute, hit deep, was kept in play wide in the left by Jamie Brennan. The Nottingham Forest defender picked out Carlo, who duly teed up Mark Watson's winner. I remember it being a very ugly, ugly game. Um, but I remember the set piece that won it again. I long ball to the back post I headed it back to Mark Watson and he headed it in and um, again it was it was the forte of what we had um, as a team we knew our set pieces with the guys we had that could go attack the ball and myself Mark Watson Paul Pesha Salido uh, Jason DeVos Paul Fennick we had guys that loved to go and attack a ball so we knew that if we could get that opportunity that we could maybe make it count and I remember Craig being very, very good in that game as well, keeping us in it. Um, so, yeah, there was a, a lot of good play and a lot of um, playing to our strengths, but also a bit of good fortune there for us to get through that game as well. Some wins are pretty, others are industrial. 
but the end result is always the same, and Canada were into the final of the 2000 Gold Cup. Further cause to celebrate came from the fact that in seeing off Trinidad and Tobago, the only other remaining CONCACAF team in the competition, Canada were in effect champions of North and Central America, earning them the right to represent their region in Japan in the following year's Confederations Cup. There remained, however, work to be done. A 2-1 win in San Diego in the other semi-final had seen Colombia advance at the expense of Peru. The Cafeteros were a team that had qualified for three straight World Cups. They had entered the tournament 24th in the world and were the third highest ranked entrance behind Mexico and the United States. In the only previous meeting between Canada and Colombia, a friendly 12 years earlier, the South Americans had run out comfortable 3-0 winners. However, while impressive, Colombia were by no means immortal. Honduras had shocked them with a 2-0 win in the group stage, while as mentioned, they needed penalties to see off the USA in the quarter-finals. And so, on February 27, 2000, the national teams of Canada and Colombia took to the field at the Memorial Coliseum in Los Angeles in front of a crowd of 7,000. For Colombia, who had never been champions of their own confederation, this was an opportunity to make their mark on international football and send a signal to their South American rivals. For Canada, this was the chance to cap off the most remarkable of campaigns and cement a place in their country's sporting history alongside the World Cup class of 86. And of course, as Canada well knew by final day, underdog status can always serve to lift the burden of expectation. It was a fabulous day. It was probably the most um, enjoyable uh, game I've ever played in a Canadian jersey, only because... The pressure was off. We already knew we had won CONCACAF. So we had, regardless of the outcome, we knew we were going to the Confederations Cup because we were the best CONCACAF team. So it was almost finally we got to play a game with no weight on our shoulders and just go out and play. And again, stuck to the game plan that, that we always had for the last year. And it teamed down with rain, which was perfect for us. And the Colombians probably didn't love it. But it was a game that we went and, we just executed to a tee and hit them on the counterattack and created opportunities that they were uncomfortable with. And everybody came together. And like I say, probably if not the most uh, up there in the top two most enjoyable games I ever played for Canada. The first 45 minutes passed by with neither side able to break the deadlock. The stalemate looked set to bring the affair into the break. But as the clock ticked over into added time, Canada won a corner. Martin Nash stood over it, the last play of the half, and hit a long, straight ball towards the far corner of the six-yard area. There, rising at the back post, was the captain, Jason DeVos. Outjumping his markers, the Dundee United centre-half heads down, a decent connection and a powerful enough header, but an effort that Colombian keeper Diego Gomez should save in his sleep. But Gomez, initially a backup choice and playing only his second game of the tournament, spills it. The ball bobbles out of his hands, against the base of the post and, crucially, in the split second before a pair of gloves reach out and grab the ball back, it bounces over the line by inches. And a header on it it's there, in. and it's that might have been in. That is a goal for Canada. The header was it Jason DeVos. It was Jason DeVos at the far post getting up and doing what he's good at. The white shirts of Canada celebrate wildly on the touchline, with pockets of Canadian support erupting in the stands. Another set piece, another goal. As it happened, 
Gomez Day would go from bad to worse, midway through the second half. You can go back to Brazil. And here comes an opportunity for Canada. This is Jeff Clark, and he's taken down in the box. And it's a penalty kick for Canada, says referee Peter Pendergast. Jeff Clark taken down by the goalkeeper Diego Gomez in the box, and this could be a defining moment right Gomez. here for Canada. Gomez got it all wrong. He should have come out and smothered the Canada, 1-0 up, have the penalty. Carlo, tied with Honduras's Carlos Pabon on three goals for the tournament, is the man to step up. I remember Jeff Clark being brought down and I knew, I mean, Holger had designated that was the other thing. There's never any doubt. Like I was taking penalties and that was it. There was never. So as soon as it happened, I knew I remember running to grab the ball because I thought, you know, I didn't want any shenanigans from Colombians grabbing the ball, throwing it around. So I grabbed it, secured it. And I knew what I was going to do. I, I would have been in a vein of form that I was pretty confident from the spot. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. And, and, you know, I can't say I was nervous at all on that one. I just felt like this is going in and this is going to be game, set, match. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty good feeling when I heard that the referee uh, whistle that uh, I think it was Pendergrass, if I, if I remember correctly. I think that's who they, the referee was. And as soon as he blew it, I thought, okay, this is going to be the – finally we're going to get to a point where we've never been. So now this kick to be taken here, and it's a goal for Canada by Carlo Corazon to give Canada the 2-0 lead. And how big is that, folks? And Carlo there were, however, 22 minutes left after Canada's second – Half of the half. In a final, that's akin to eons. And while not much came in the next 15 minutes, the events of the 83rd threatened to blow the contest wide open again. Valtteri losing it there, and in come the Colombians with Aspria. And they've got numbers in the box. And there's a penalty kick coming up now for Colombia. Whoops. You know, it's never over, and especially with the firepower the Colombians had on that team. And Espria stepping up and I remember walking up to Craig just before Faustino was going to take it and I said as a taker I said stand as long as you can because he's going to want to see you give away something and he's good enough to change his mind at the last second and uh, I just remember saying to him stand as long as you can stand as long as you can. Here comes the penalty kick now from Colombia and Forrest oh! makes the save on a rather weak looking effort from the Colombia. <laughs> In the end, he made a comfortable save, which, again, talk about jubilation. And But we knew we still had some minutes to, to play out. But we, we thought, you know what, for this tournament especially, winning the coin toss, getting the draws that we needed, maybe we finally got the luck to run the whole tournament. And by that time, it was a matter of just playing out the game and being smart, and, and we did. Columbia just going through the motions now. And can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Pendergast blows the whistle? It's official. Canada, 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? When you're immersed in that type of atmosphere, that's all you're really thinking about is that final whistle. So once the final whistle went, then it was... It was mayhem from us and pandemonium. And I look back now even at some of the video and guys just running in all directions, not really sure what to do and how to celebrate. And 
After hours of globetrotting, the rigmarole of a qualifying tournament, the tense toss of a coin, a golden goal win over the joint favourites, two bouts of penalty-saving heroism and a four-goal stand from Carlo Corazin, Canada were the 2,000 Gold Cup winners. The title of regional champions, a ticket to the 2001 Confederations Cup and a place in the annals alongside the World Cup squad of the 80s were theirs. Drawn into the toughest group, the Canucks had had to beat the best of both North and Central America and the rest of the world. Only once before had the Canadian team claimed major honours, in a watered-down 1985 version of the defunct CONCACAF Championship, from which Mexico had been absent as they prepared to host the 86 World Cup, and to which the USA arrived with, at the time, no professional outdoor league. This was unquestionably Canada's greatest soccer triumph. And yet... With European domestic seasons still in full swing, for the players, club duty was calling. We were fortunate enough as that group that we got to stay. I think it was one more night together and then they tried to get people out. And it, it, was, it was an accomplishment that, like I say, and I've said in many interviews, Cam, the only unfortunate part is as a team, that team's never been really um, given the opportunity to celebrate that because we had so many guys at different ends of the earth and everybody dispersed off into, in, into going back to their own club. So we never got that real big, um, you know, sense of achievement from within Canada because we never got to celebrate that, that, that victory with the fans and the people of Canada as one big unit. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I would love to push forward and, and I've mentioned to a few people is to get that opportunity to do that and, and, and have a celebration of, uh, you know, it's been 20 years. Um, we're all getting older, as you can see, the gray hair and the gray beard um, to, to go in and, and actually celebrate it as, it as it probably should be celebrated. I guess that a lot of the team possibly didn't go back to Canada. They probably went straight back to their respective playing destination. Yeah, exactly. And no disrespect, there was a few guys on the team at the time that were still um, in Canada waiting for the MLS or at the verges of playing on the MLS. So, you know, Dwayne De Rosario's and um, they were on the squad. And when they came back, they had, you know, the odd interview on some of the sports channels and on the news channels. But there was never a, a whole group of, of, of that squad getting together and saying, okay, you know what? Cheers, here's to what we accomplished that year, that time. Uh, something that hadn't ever been accomplished by Canada and to this day still hasn't been accomplished by Canada. So, um, you know, again, it's me kind of sitting on a, a soapbox right now trying to advocate for it, but it would be great to finally get that, uh, get that done. The Gold Cup win never got the welcoming it quite merited. And unfortunately, nor did it spark Canada's return to football's biggest stage. Qualification for the 2002 World Cup began later that summer, and though three months on from their regional triumph, they managed to battle to a playoff win in Havana over Cuba and reach the second stage, a July defeat at the hands of Trinidad set the tone for a disappointing phase. With the top two from the four-team group progressing to the final round, Canada finished third, a whole eight points behind Mexico. At the next edition of the Gold Cup, they fared slightly better, and a repeat performance looked a genuine possibility. But a semi-final defeat to the USA, on penalties, brought an end to their title defence. And as of the start of the 2021 Gold Cup, Canada are still waiting for a second appearance in a final. But there were positives to the win in 2000. 
huge ones, a trip to the land of the rising sun to join up with the likes of Brazil and France for one. That was wonderful as well. It really was. It was um, you know, to be a part of kind of the pre-show for the World Cup, having not qualified for the World Cup. Was superb. In an eight-team tournament, the Canadians were drawn into Group A with Japan, Cameroon and soon-to-be five-time World Cup winners, Brazil. A 3-0 defeat to the host was an unforgiving start, but the response came in Game 2, as Canada held the Brazilians, whose second-string squad still featured the likes of Dida, Lucio and Edmilson, to a goalless draw. Cameroon, Olympic gold medalist just the year before, won the final group affair. 2-0. Seeing the, the facilities there and again, it, it, you know, played against the likes of Brazil. It was a fantastic game. We performed really, really well. Again, big performance from Greg Forrest. And, um, that was, you know, that, that made the tournament, you know, it really did. And, um, you know, it, no one expected us to kind of get out of the group and we didn't, but I don't think we did ourselves any harm on that stage. And um, it was ever so enjoyable and, uh, you know, a memory that I'll never forget. It was superb. And who knows, had it not been for a late withdrawal, the summer of 2001 could have been just as sweet as the winter of early 2000. Continuing the custom of inviting outside nations to appear at the tournament, the Copper America extended an offer to Canada. The Canadians were drawn into Group C with Honduras, Uruguay and Bolivia. But when Conmebol cancelled the event amid a tense political situation in host nation Colombia, plans were abandoned only for the event to be put back on five days later. The news, unfortunately, came too late for the Canucks, and Colombia went on to beat Mexico in the final of a Canada-less tournament. Unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't pan out, but um, yeah, that would have been superb. But, you know, I look back at my, my Canadian career, uh, having played in that the, the, um, the Gold Cup and winning the Gold Cup, having played in the um, Confederation Cup, were, were two great memories, and... Um, France, I probably could have had a lot more had I had injuries not been a bit of an issue. Um, and, you know, I'm quite proud of my achievements there and uh, I look back at quite fondly. I mean, there's been discussions of, oh, you know, wish we could have gone. And, you know, at that stage, we were flying so high that we would have loved to test ourselves against, you know, again, that upper echelon of world football. But, you know, we also knew that it was made on the best interest of ourselves. And I remember when it got reinstated, that panic for about three to four days of can we get ourselves together and it just logistically wasn't going to happen with where everybody was in the time of the year that it ended up being at it was a disappointment at the time but i can't say that we've looked back and many times said oh what if or what could have happened but at the time for sure we really did feel we were missing out on a really big tournament and while, on the whole, the last two decades have borne sparing fruit for the Canada men's national team, the future may just be brighter. In 2019, a new Canadian Premier League was formed, bringing organised professional football back to Canada, which will act as a co-host for the North American World Cup of 2026. It is yet to be announced whether this will mean automatic qualification for the Canucks, but with qualification for the 2022 tournament continuing later this year, the Canadians, with their eye on one of CONCACAF's three automatic berths, will be hoping their return comes sooner, buoyed by a new generation of stars. Well, if I look back, um, not that we have a ton of um, positive spots within the football um, over the time the CSA has been around and been playing, but when they qualified um, for 86 in Mexico, 
you just have to do the math of the team from 2000. We were all young boys and it was something like, wow, we want to do that. And it spurned us on. If you look at the team now that Canada has, which hands down is probably the most talented Canadian team I've ever seen, especially going forward. Um, if you do take Alfonso Davies out of it, cause he's so young, but the other ones, I'm sure they remember the 2000 gold cup. So it kind of sets that standard for the next generations. And hopefully that 2000 win spurned a lot of these young guys on that we're seeing now in the pool being bigger. And hopefully what these guys do now um, can create that sort of excitement for the next generation. So, you know, it, it has its impact. Um, very proud of the fact that what we did in 2000 um, with the national team and, and, and hopefully it was the start of something that we can look back at in years and years and years from now to say, you know what, that really had the impetus of getting people to get going and, and really believing in football in Canada. Well, there we go. Another episode of Outside Football is complete. If you want to listen to our back catalogue, you can find it on Spotify, on Google and Apple Podcasts, on Twitter via at Outside Footy, that's footy with a Y, SoundCloud and Anchor FM. I've really enjoyed putting this together. Thanks go to Carlo and Paul for being such great sports and to Luke Wildman as well for his help in arranging. And thanks to you once again for listening in. This is a one-man show, and so any sharing, retweeting, and liking is greatly appreciated by me. I've been Cameron Pope, and if you want to follow me, I can be found imaginatively at, at @campopesports. If there are any other topics you think would fit well for this podcast and you've got a burning desire to hear me talk about, please do let me know. I hope you enjoyed listening to what I think is a fantastic underdog story. And please join us again for another one soon. Thank you very much, and goodbye. <laughs>